This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, February 3rd of 2017, it's episode 105. In this episode, Exploration, a topic selected by our Patreon supporters, plus Grant's Fellowship Game, Peter's Rough Week, and the reasons we own our cars. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how you doing? Uh, not so great. Yeah. Um, this is, has not been the best week for either one of us. My wife and I had to uh, put our cat of the last 12 years down over the weekend. Poor little yep. guy uh, had congestive heart failure. That's never fun. No, it was not. Yep. I know you, uh, you mentioned that you were looking at a new cat. Any luck with that? No, I don't think this was the one. Mm. Oh, well. I'm sure you guys will find one soon. We hope so. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a whole lot to talk about either. Uh, we did play Fellowship last night. How'd that go? It went pretty well. I'm a little weirded out by Apocalypse World, though. Like, Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, It's kind of strange how it formalizes everything you do, but it formalizes it into these really big chunks called moves. So you're kind of always doing a move. Okay. And so you're always rolling for something. Sometimes it's like, well, this is just something I would do. Okay, well, roll for it and see what happens. Okay, well, that seems fine. It's just very strange. It's this odd combination of let's give everything a rule, but make those rules really big and really abstract. And everything has a rule, but it's not everything has an individual rule. It's it's not like GURPS. It's much more abstracted than well, that. Well, it's everything falls into the realm of several rules. Just huge chunks that are all under one rule. It's weird. Not bad, just different. Um, we'll see how it hmm. goes. But it, it went well. We had some good role-playing come out of it. By and large, it's been good. We've also produced a tremendous amount of pre-game homework. That's <laughs> been interesting. Lots all of right. writing ahead of time. Like, I've got an inbox of 30 or 40 emails, not counting the four or five hours of setup we did in person. Good grief. Yeah, like, that seems just... a little excessive, actually. And it probably is excessive, but it's been kind of good to get us into it, so... All right, well, if it's working, it's working. It's working, it's just... A learning experience? And two of us have kids. Like, Chrissy and I have two kids to take care of, and other people have kids in the game. Yeah, these it's are like... not teenagers either you know they're they're still very much dependent on you guys yeah so it's like it's fine but it feels like i'm missing out on a lot of the prep that other people have sent out because i haven't i haven't read it i feel like i should read this but i have two little bipedal responsibilities i have to take care of yeah and then like i'd like to occasionally do something with my wife and maybe sleep once in a while yeah although that hasn't happened much but I'm having fun playing a temporally displaced wizard, so that's okay. good. When he has prophecies, because um, his thing is he's kind of this blind, mad prophet. And okay, here's a good example of how to adapt. When you screw something up, me and the GM were emailing back and forth, and Chrissy pointed out, right as we were about to start the game, that we had completely forgotten my character was supposed to be blind, and his whole race was supposed to be blind. Okay. Huh. <laughs> So it was like, okay, well, how do we work that back in? And so what we've decided is that because it's this group of prophets, basically, when they have a vision 
They just lose track of where they are in time and start seeing things that aren't there because they're not going to be there yet or they were there 300 years ago. Hmm. All right. And start seeing people as they were or will be or as they will be, you know, as their descendants will be. And so they can't tell what's real around them. They're functionally blind to the world for like an hour after their brain just kind of leaves the current time and scoots ahead a little bit. Sounds like a combination of Teferi and the great race of Yith. A little bit of that, but it sort of focuses in as you go. So that's, it's kind of fun because my character just tried to walk through the wall because there was a door there 30 years ago and somebody bricked it up. That was uncomfortable. <laughs> that hurt a little. Yeah. Or, yeah. You it's know, a stone wall. Please duck. Why? Something is going to fly through this space. I'm trying to figure out when. Keep ducking. <laughs> oh, never mind. It'll be 200 years from now. Yeah. Or, you know, you duck. I've been crouching in the rain for an hour. Things like that. So that's been kind of fun. I'm really kind of happy with my terrible character. Well, that's always good. He's a terrible person. Okay. <laughs> I described him to someone as basically Namor, the Marvel version of Aquaman. Oh yeah, I'm familiar. Okay, Namor, but discovered behind a 7-Eleven after a month's long bender. Oh dear. Just ragged and nasty. Yeah, he's not a pleasant person. No, it doesn't sound like he is. Uh, yeah, so it's been good. I'll have more to talk about and write about it as we go. Honestly, I'm excited for Saturday because we get to actually play our game. Yeah, no kidding. It's, uh, we had illness and then tragedy, so yeah. it'll be real nice to get back to that in a couple of days. I am excited. I've been sitting on a little bit of stuff. Nothing like... Nothing earth-shattering this time, but... Yeah, but, you know, it actually, and relevant to what we're going to be talking about today, too. We're going to be talking about exploration, and you guys are setting off into the wide, wide... Other part of the archipelago. The slightly <laughs> wider world around you. Yeah. Yeah, the wide, wide other part of the archipelago. Yeah, and I sort of <laughs> wish we'd, looking back on it, I wish we'd almost save this topic for after that had happened, but... Eh. Eh, you know, scheduling happens. Speaking of scheduling, we should uh, move our schedule along here. We have a Patreon question to get to, and then a little bit of yep. scripture, and then a relatively sizable topic. Yep. So let's uh, let's roll on our list O Patreon questions. And if you want your name on this list, just you know support us on Patreon and send us a message with your question. Once we read if, it, send us another one. Uh, yeah. And if your name is already on this list and you don't have a question next to it, like many of you, send us a question, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we would hate to start inventing questions or skipping this. So yeah. Let's do the thing. Okay, so this one is from uh, Jim Namban, who's a pretty frequent commenter of ours. And this one is delightful because it's the first one that's completely un uh, unrelated to role-playing games. <laughs> okay. I'm so excited. At last. What is one little thing you look for in a car? I mean the little things. My mom once chose her car based on which one had the most room for her big hair. Me, I'm really looking for dimmable side mirrors. I'm so sick of having my retina blasted off by those cars with the laser beam headlights. Okay, so this wasn't something I was really looking for in um, our current vehicle. We've got a... The, the car that I drive day-to-day -day is a 2008 Subaru Outback. Mm -hmm. I never had this feature in any previous car that I've ever had, but now that I've had this, I never want to have a car that doesn't have it. And that is simply an aux port that I can plug my phone or some other three and a half millimeter audio device into so I can listen to podcasts while I drive. Yep. So we actually recently bought a Prius. All right. Great car. Really enjoy it. It has Bluetooth rather than an aux port. Okay. Which, you know, 601, really, because it's like, well, it uses the battery on the phone and it's 
kind of just awkward sometimes because it takes, you know, it has to sync. And if there's multiple phones in the car, but it's also really nice to not have cables running around. So I'm kind of old school on that. I like the cables, but I'm weird. Yeah. So. Uh, it also has the key that you just have in your pocket. Oh, one of those proximity keys. Yeah. And that's kind of weird and neat. It kind of freaks me out. I'm not used to driving like that. And so I'm right. always like, I'm constantly checking my pocket, even though the car is driving. It's like, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Am I going to drive out of range of my key and the car's yeah, going to suddenly stop? Just, or? I flip out when I purposefully leave my phone in the car because it's hooked up to my car's aux port, right? Right. Like if I get out to get gas, even though I know what I did with my phone, I'm constantly checking. If my pockets don't feel right, I'm just off. Yeah. I've gone through that at work a couple of times. Okay, so tiny little aside. Like a lot of people up here in the Midwest, during the wintertime, I wear a jacket most of the time. And I will sometimes drop my car keys into my coat pocket instead of my pants pocket because that's just more convenient in the moment. And you panic. I don't necessarily panic, but I'll be walking around during the day and it's just like, man, my you know something feels off and I'll actually have to go back to my coat grab my keys out of the pocket and drop them into the left pocket of my jeans because that's where I usually have them just to have it stop being distracting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of the same. I'm a creature of habit. I'm kind of torn really between the the wireless proximity key thing, which is neat, but a little weird, and the backup camera. I've used those before. I don't have one in my current vehicle. Those things are amazing. They're cool. My problem is I feel like I'm not actually looking. Does that make sense? Like, I'm used to turn your head around, look behind you as you back up. Yeah. And so even though it has a good field of view and everything, if I'm looking down, I feel like I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. It actually has a better field of view than uh, you would if you looked, I think. I know that it does, and it's great having it for backing up because it's kind of got a little bit of a fisheye. So, you know, I can tell this thing is close now. I need to stop. Yeah. Yeah. It's really handy, and I think that's going to be my answer here. It's not a little thing. Like, that really is a feature. But They're they're good for, like, small children and animals and stuff, too, right? Because a lot of the time they're below the level of the window. I never appreciate it more than when I am at my daughter's gymnastics class. Because there are kids running through the parking lot constantly. And if I'm backing up near the, the main entrance, it's so nice to just be able to watch that thing and slam on the brakes. Because some kid ran out. Yeah. Having said that, that's not a little thing. Like, that's a nice feature to have. Um, Yeah. You know what I think the little thing for me is at this point? And I do think this is a little thing right now. Automatic lights. All right, yeah. Because you know what the Prius doesn't have? Hmm. Automatic headlights. It's a ridiculously advanced car. The headlights are completely manual. And it's the weirdest feeling. It's like, shouldn't my car be smarter than this? Our 2001 Chevy was smarter than this. (laughs) You know, um, the other thing that that actually brings to mind that I love about the Outback, mm-hmm. when I turn the car off, it automatically turns off everything that's plugged into one of the car adapters, that, uh-huh. what used to be called the cigarette ports, but they're you know, power nobody, adapters these yeah, days. Yeah, nobody has ever used them for that, you know, since like the late 90s. I'm just waiting for them to go ahead and hook that up to like 120 volt. Yeah. 
it it kills the power adapters. It kills the headlights. It, it it doesn't like ding at you or anything. It just goes ahead and shuts all that stuff off as soon as the engine stops running. So you can't wear it out. That's awesome. Exactly. You get back in. It turns everything on. My GPS lights up because it's got power going to it. My yep. phone can charge. My headlights come on and off you go. It's wonderful. It's perfectly engineered. Living up there in your cold and frozen north, you got to be as careful of your battery as you can. Yeah, also, it gets dark up here a lot more than it does down there, from what I understand. A little We're bit, a little yeah. further away from the equator than you are, so... Yeah, I suppose that's true. Anyway, so, I guess that's our answers. I mean, that's as little as I can go. I'm not a car person. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, so I'm not sure I have a better answer than, please just be smart about your headlights. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. And I, I gotta say, I, I really do love being able to pick what I listen to and not being like beholden to the radio or even the CD player. Right. The ability to listen to podcasts instead of, you know, the same music over and over again is such a wonderful, you know, commute enhancer. There's a lot of times where I'm a little bit disappointed when I get to the end of my commute. All right. Well, there you go. Thank you, Jim. Good question. Yeah. Get us another one. You're good about that. We're looking forward to it. Yep. And again, I want to stress that these questions do not have to be role-playing game related. Yeah, look at how much uh, Grant and I got out of a car thing, and we're not even car guys. Yeah. All right, let's do our scripture, shall we? Yeah. You want Genesis or Mark? Uh, I'll take Genesis. All right. So this is Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. This is Mark sixteen fifteen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So tonight we're talking about exploration. There are a lot of games that strive to be a sandbox, but there are not as many where there's just territory that's completely unknown. Your job is to just go explore it. There are a few. One of the games that Peter and I have played that we didn't really like that much actually kind of encourages this. Uh, Rogue Trader. Yeah. And... and Certain older D&D versions and other other games in that vein had, you know, kind of your hex crawl style of exploration. And we're, by the way, we're talking about exploring kind of overland. We're not talking about go explore a dungeon. Right. Overland or larger scale, like across the ocean or out into space. Yeah, anything like that. It's kind of funny how many games assume the world's already mapped, mostly. And I think a lot of this is because, <laughs> okay, so the first role-playing game came out in the late 70s, Dungeons & Dragons. By that point, the world that we live in already was mapped. Yeah. And so it's one of those kind of subconscious things that unless you start thinking, hey, I want to do a world where there's a lot of unexplored territory and the world isn't mapped, well, you just kind of default to what you know. The world is mapped, you know? Right, we, right. We, we know the whole setting. And there are plenty of games where this is not true. Somebody gave me a copy recently of Hollow Earth Expeditions. Well, guess what? That's all about exploring the hollow, pulpy inside of the Earth and discovering everything in it that hasn't been explored. Okay, cool. Space exploration games. Plentiful. Uh, yep. Fantasy games. They have exploration elements very often. Really, well, it's there's, a there's areas in even Eberron where it was, um, it used to be familiar and now it's not anymore. And we'll we'll kind of get to that a little bit later. But the Mornland is terra incognita. Right. And there's a whole continent in Eberron that's completely unexplored, at least by the folks who don't live there. Right. And here's the thing. Well-known worlds are great, right? Shadowrun is fine. Yeah. The Forgotten Realms are fine. Lots of people have played in that and gotten a lot of fun out of it. Yeah. But 
exploring the space between places we know or exploring what's off the map is also really cool. It's its own kind of storytelling, and that's what we're talking about. It's got its own draws. And so you kind of have to ask why you're exploring in the first place. This could be that the people who are exploring, right, your characters, they're just no longer welcome where they're supposed to be, and they need to go find someplace new to live. It may be that they have to leave. Yeah, the home's no longer habitable for any number of reasons. Uh, greed is one of the, the great uh, motivators for exploration. Mm-hmm. There's gold in them, thar hills, I need to go find it. Likewise, scientific interest. Scientific interest kind of pairs interestingly with greed because there's this sort of conflict between I want to learn about the thing and I want to exploit the thing. Yeah. So, and sometimes it's those people are just out there for pure curiosity. You know, why does this area have such weird magnetic fields or something? Sure. I mean, that's why we're exploring the last few places on Earth that are unexplored. What's down there in the ocean? What's in this completely inaccessible part of Madagascar? That sort of thing. Yeah. Political expansion is another big one. You know, yeah. our, our uh, homeland is getting crowded. We need more space. Sure. I mean, we've seen that in at least, you know, U.S. history. Yep. Uh, Military necessity is another one. Even though this is usually referred to as scouting, it is a form of uh, exploration, or at least it's closely related enough to kind of discuss side by side with it. Uh, This is kind of the process of finding out what's past your own battle lines in a war. Yep. Which might even be in your own country, which you ostensibly know, but they're occupied by another force and that force has made some changes. So you have to find out what those are. Yep. And then, of course, religious expansion, mission work. We'd be remiss if we didn't address that. Absolutely. These are all reasons, right? And these are uh, motivations for characters. And we're not going to talk a ton about those, but it's worth thinking about because, well, it's going to tie into the rest of your plot. Why are we here? And maybe to some degree, what do we want to put into the area you're exploring? Yeah. If your party is there to exploit resources, well, do you want to put resources in there as a draw or do you want to... Just kind of see what comes up. It's something to or think about. possibly a mix of both, which... Yeah, perfectly valid. Naturally, the next question is, given the game that you are playing, how fantastical is the area that you're exploring? And I want to touch on this for a moment because you're doing something kind of interesting with this in our game. Okay. The civilizations that our player characters came from are relatively low fantasy and low power. You said that most of the adventuring classes top out around, what, about level five or so back in the old world? Yeah. There's not a lot of magical items lying around. It's very much not Eberron. It's it's probably more like the Renaissance with like a light dusting of uh, magic and no gunpowder. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I'm going for is really kind of the post-Renaissance, early 1600s era in Europe, mixed with a little bit of say, the the old D&D birthright setting, that low magic yeah. feeling. The New World is a lot more of a typical D&D setting. Um, there's yeah. magic stuff lying around. There's the ruins of ancient civilizations. There's exotic, sapient creatures there, uh, like yeah. the Kenku village that we've met. Yeah, all true. And there's occasional weird magic artifacts lying around, not like magic items, but just things that are magical that are part of the geography. In some ways. Yes, like a huge glass plate that transports you to a pocket dimension where a small beholder feeds you sandwiches. Yes. And also tries to trap you there forever. Yeah, I mean, that's totally normal. Well, in this setting, anyway. Tangent aside, I I wanted to play up this weird magical sense a little bit. I mean, you went to explore a witch's hut, 
and that was a really weird place. It wasn't necessarily super magical, but it was weird and fantastic. <laughs> it was creepy as all get out, too. Giant fish skull, large enough to live in. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's not just, oh, it's a straw hut. Yeah. Oh, it's a brick house just in the swamp. All right, that's cool. No, she lives in a giant fish skull. That's two stories. Yeah, like a giant anglerfish skull, specifically. It's one of the creepiest buildings I've ever been in in any game I've ever played. Well Thank done, you. by the way. Thank you. I, I was pleased with that. And it fits into the whole hag witch thing, you know. Everything is weird about this and kind of grotesque. As you guys set off to explore in the upcoming sessions, you're going to encounter more weird and fantastic stuff, because I've, to a certain degree, got the opportunity to present that to you. You have a place that you're going to, and we're going to talk about this in just yeah, a moment. It, it does actually bear mentioning, though, and I want to throw this in. We have discovered a bunch of weird and fantastical stuff. Giant glowing bugs, the witch that lives in the huge fish skull. But we had a very good time last session we actually got to play exploring a place that could exist in the real world. We just went up this very sheer cliff and found a small structure that somebody had built kind of into one of the natural caves up there. And it's like, okay, somebody's been up here before. What were they doing? Why is this here? What was this used for? But there was nothing magical about that. And in fact, I modeled that off a real place. We're yep. going to talk about that as well. But what you guys are doing now, I have the opportunity to just drop in little things along the way. And that's... That's a useful trick. You guys are going from point A to point B. You don't exactly know where point B is, but you're going to try and find it, and you have a rough idea of the direction. Yep. Well, you're not going to just go straight to point B in terms of the narrative, right? No, I'm sure something will happen along the way. Later on, maybe you will. But as you explore this area for the first time, well, you're going to visit an island along the way, and then maybe another island, and oh, here's an interesting feature— Huh, isn't it weird what the ocean is doing right here? I'm making stuff up at this yeah. point, but you know. Why is there this weird patch of the ocean that's like just glowing blue? Yeah, okay. That's weird. Let's poke it and then see if it does anything and maybe move on or maybe have an adventure related to it. Whatever. Yeah. We sort of did this when you guys first landed. We've done that several times throughout the campaign, actually. Right. You know, we narrated out, hey... You guys are going from your landing place to a sign of habitation that you see. Ended up being a Kenku village. Yep. We spent most of a session kind of talking about what you guys see along the way and what you find and exploring and poking at things that you find. Now it's just, hey, we're going to head off to the Kenku village. All right, you travel for a day. Yeah. And that's we've fun. been there before. It's no longer something to explore. It's not relevant anymore. Yeah, we did that with the uh, the shipwreck that we wound up salvaging. We did yep. that uh, with Auntie Bloat's house. We did that with the island that we were just on. Mm -hmm. These are all things that in the future we'll probably revisit in some way, shape, or form. And it'll be like, okay, you've been here. You do what you need to do to get to the place. Now that you're at the place, adventure happens. Right. But the first time you go there, that's the adventure itself. And that serves a couple of purposes. First... It gives you some idea of what the surroundings are like. Let's players build up an idea of the environment, and that's got its own validity. If I just tell you, okay, you travel, and then you get to a Kinku village. Well, that's cool, but you kind of don't know what that Kinku village is set in. I can describe it to you, but it doesn't feel as embedded in the world. Yeah, you don't find broken, massive statues on the way and kind of use those as a landmark in your mind. And... Right, and it's like, oh, it's in jungle that looks like this. Yeah. Okay, I get it. It gives a more visceral sense of where the important places are. And that's cool. That's important. 
Second, it gives you something to go back to later on. Just because there are these points of interest on your map, that doesn't mean that you can't go back to the places in between and use those later on. Yep. And describe how those are changing. Maybe your settlement expands. They've built a house about halfway between the Kinku Village and uh, the place where you guys landed. You now know what that is like. Yep. You know what what's in there. I imagine there's probably going to be some farms on that um, land around the, the bay area on the island because that's fertile and it looks like it'll be easily terraced. And one of the noble people that we have with us has taken a liking to that area. Right. And I don't imagine she's going to leave it alone for long. <laughs> that's one reason I had you guys explore that rather than just sort of skip over it real quick was to give you some idea of the geography that you will later be doing things in. And again, knowing that it's going to change. If I tell you, hey, the settlement has grown, okay, that's cool, but you don't have a visceral sense of what has changed. Yeah. Now you do. Yeah, it's like, ah, you're going through the estate of that fiery halfling bard, okay. Cool. Yeah. Now, skipping over the stuff in the middle is also totally fine, depending on, you know, what needs to happen. Yeah, if you're just wandering through the desert or sailing over relatively uninteresting ocean for a while, we didn't describe everything that happened on a minute-by-minute -minute basis as we traveled from the New World to where the campaign is set. That right. would have been boring and pointless. And also, even if it's somewhere you haven't been or somewhere that story could maybe happen, sometimes the narrative just requires, all right, yep, this happens, it's rough going, but after two weeks you get there. Yeah, or and that's okay. it happens, it's utterly uneventful going... Aren't you glad you have something interesting to do now? And even if you say, yeah, you have interesting struggles along the way, as long as there's not story happening, you can just kind of narrate over it pretty quickly. But when there are story elements to introduce, whether it's dramatic moments to come back to or something procedural, that's when exploration really starts to matter. A quick note on this, by the way. Often we're talking about exploring wilderness areas, but in a lot of games, those wilderness areas are actually populated you just don't know who's there yet yep <laughs> just because your civilization calls it an unexplored wilderness doesn't mean it's an unexplored wilderness to anyone else in fact the denizens of that unexplored wilderness might consider your civilization to be an unexplored wilderness if they ever got there so exactly so keep that in mind but also keep in mind that your wilderness area if it does have sentient communities those communities will have their own politics, their relationships with neighboring communities, interactions with other points of interest on the map. Politics and world building don't stop just because the party is having to fill in the map as they go. Your bard yeah. needs something to do, too. Trust yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> that will give it a sense that this is a real place. One of the problems I have with certain traditional ways of doing exploration is that they don't feel real. Yeah. Okay, so this this kind of brings us to... Well, different ways of doing this. And not everything that you discover has to be important, I think is kind of one of the, um, the things that I want to throw in here. It's like those massive sawing tree-eating beetles that move at about the speed of a glacier that's been heavily sedated. Yeah. They're a neat piece of setting texture, but they're not something that's terribly important. They're like way over in a part of the island that we're not in. They're not really heading towards us. They just kind of, according to some NPCs that have seen them in action for a long period of time, just kind of wander in a circle eating trees. Yeah, they're literally just giant tortoises, but beetles. Yeah. That's really kind of what I did with them. 
And they are something that you could choose to interact with at some point. Yeah. We need to hunt one to feed the colony for like a week. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But they're not a threat. But they're the kind of thing that you could have on a random encounter table. Yeah, they are. And I want to talk about random encounters, right? Because this is one way that we've traditionally done this in gaming. Random encounters have the advantage of coming up with weird stuff. They're really sort of a list of things that could be in an area and then the GM just sort of picks. The idea of randomness is the GM is not just handing you level-appropriate encounters, which sometimes feels unrealistic. Yeah, very stilted. Or, you know, that they're not being horrible to you. Which can also happen. Yeah, and a properly curated random encounter table can provide a sense of an environment that is an ecosystem. It exists on its own merits, right? That's okay. And they're certainly good for inspiration. Definitely. I mean, you guys had an encounter with this very slow, boring beetle, but the way it was presented was kind of a mystery, right? Huh, what made this giant empty track through this forest? Oh. Yeah, we were all ready for something much more dangerous than that beetle when we right. finally found it. And that's the thing. It's not just that the beetle is this quote-unquote random encounter. This was not random, just to be clear, but it's the kind of thing that could easily fit on the yeah. table. If I had told you, you encounter a beetle, it is eating trees. It is massive. Moving I mean, along. You kind of go, oh, that, uh, okay. Yeah. Neat. Right, so presentation matters. Absolutely. Handled improperly, though, random encounters can be boring, they can be unrealistic, and worst of all, they can just feel like filler. So here's what not to do with your random encounters. Let's say you'd had that beetle as part of a table that you rolled on and you rolled on it. Instead of just being like, roll on table, X of these attack you, which is what often happens, you described the effect of the beetle first. There's this massive, disturbingly straight track, about 12 feet wide, where all of the vegetation down to the ground has just been clear cut. It's just gone through through dense forest. And we're just kind of like, uh, that's not good. You know, we're, we're all immediately picturing, you know, some kind of magical annihilating thing or something like that. And then we kind of all arm ourselves and kind of creep along. And it's like, oh, look at that. That is the most enormous, harmless thing I have ever. Wow, is it moving slowly? Yeah, it's going to chew on that tree it just knocked down for about a week. And yep. then turn its head a little. <laughs> and chew on the next tree. <laughs> yeah, and. That's super boring, but presented properly, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this beetle has come up in multiple things I've written, multiple sessions, multiple, you know, episodes here. And it's just like a little bit of setting texture. There's nothing important about that beetle, but it's interesting just the same. Right. The other thing is that I was not saying every hour, let's roll and see what happens. Yeah. That really has always felt extremely artificial to me. It's because it is completely artificial. Yeah. Reality doesn't work that way. Yeah, very true. And good random encounter table may have, you know, nothing. Okay, that's fine. But then it's like, you encounter nothing. You encounter nothing. You encounter nothing. You encounter four skeletons. Ah, that's so dull. Yeah. And that's what people are afraid of when they hear random encounter table. Yeah, to get back to the what I was trying to get at before with the beetle. When you roll something up on the random encounter table, instead of just immediately presenting whatever it is, if you're if you're even using one in the first place, think about, OK, how would this thing present itself in an environment and go from there? What kind of clues to this thing's presence can I give? So, OK, let's say I roll up four skeletons. All right. Well, instead of four skeletons attack you, 
okay, wouldn't it be interesting if you'd found an old cemetery? Yep. This is a cemetery on this island. We've not seen one of these. Who built it? Why is it here? Uh, there's a couple old tombs and things like that. And then skeletons crawl out of the earth. Or you find some graves that look like they've been dug up from the inside and then the skeletons come and get you or something. Right. So what has happened? We've placed this encounter in the world in a way that makes it fit into the setting. Yep. And it's more than just a combat encounter. It is that as well, but it's also... Something about the setting itself. Right. Okay. What is animating them, right? These are not just random wandering yeah. skeletons. It's, wait a minute, why here and not anywhere else on the and island? What's up? Why only four? Why these four? Right. Are these the only four buried here? Okay, that tells us one thing. These four out of 30, well, that's something different. These four out of 400, that's something different too. And that's a GM option that lets you set that in the world and say something about the world, even after you have just rolled up something random. Yep. So that's how you use random encounters, in my opinion. Uh, mine too, after seeing it done that way. <laughs> well, and, and again, I want to stress that I'm not actually doing random encounters in my game. Fair enough. But they are sort of similar in that they are encounters that you have along the way that are not story relevant, right? They could easily be random encounters. I'm just curating them to the point where there's no list. Yeah. I mean, the list is, huh, what's interesting in the monster manual? What would be an interesting thing to find along the way? And I do have to say that I, I like the fact that you're using some of the stuff that one doesn't normally see. I, I've never encountered Kenku in a previous D&D game. And actually, your Kenku are very different from what's described in the Monster Manual, too. So Well, and there are story reasons for that. Like, they just kind of have to be. Yeah. Right? If they could mimic, well, then you wouldn't really be able to talk to them because they don't... Like, it just wouldn't make sense. Well, but I mean, like, their cultural personality is different yeah. and stuff. They're, they're a lot less sinister than they typically are. Because so. I wanted them to be... NPCs to interact with and not just a set piece. Yeah. So anyway, random encounters, that's one way to do it. The other way is sort of a, a classic hex crawl where you have points of interest and then you have just a map that you're exploring. And typically this is divided into hexes, hence the hex crawl to compare and contrast it to a dungeon crawl. But the idea is you kind of start off saying, this is an area that we know has points of interest. We know there's something in here that we need to advance the plot, to solve a problem, whatever. But we don't necessarily know exactly where it is. So you start off and you travel towards something that you do know about and you discover what's there along the way. And you maybe just kind of explore around and see, okay, well, let's go east. All right, no, there's nothing here. Okay, let's go north now. Oh, hey, we had an encounter with something interesting. A little more freeform, but yep. there's a map the GM knows about and the players are building their map as they go. Just because the players are starting off with limited knowledge, though, doesn't mean that that's everything that's in there. You might start off knowing, okay, there's a village in here, and then there's a ruined temple. Well, you get to the village, and they tell you, well, okay, there's pirates living upriver, and there's a nest of giant spiders to the north. Okay, now your map is filling in. Yep. And so as you interact more, you build up this map. This has some advantages in that it feels very immersive, right? and it's player problem solving, which is cool. There's that sense of success and reward and also agency. Yeah, you're filling out the map and the players are choosing where to go and what to do. It's very sandboxy. And this is sandboxing at its best, where the players have an area to play around in and do what they see fit in. That's really what a sandbox is supposed to be. It's a little bit theme parky in some ways and that you get to the points of interest and those are sort of their own thing. But, you know, if you have a, a good map, it can be 
Well, we know there's giant spiders this way, we know there's a fire giant the other way, but we need to go one way or the other. Let's decide. Or maybe we go all the way around and suffer the hardships of travel, but we avoid both of those. It's up yep. to us, right? It's whatever we want to do. And that feedback loop of we have explored more, we've gotten more information, so now we know what we want to do next, and that causes us to act in a certain way, explore, get more information, right? It's kind of a, a loop of knowledge. That is satisfying. Yeah, it makes for kind of a virtuous cycle of adventure, and that's good. That's yeah. what you want. And it's very self-contained. And like I said, this is a classic way of doing it. Often this is mixed in with random encounters. If you're not going to a point of interest, then whatever terrain is in this particular hex, I have a random encounter table for. Yep. Okay, We should fine. probably talk some about where we get the inspiration for these points of interest, huh? Yeah, we probably should. It's probably time to move on. Yeah. I'll tell you the big one for me. All right. Photography and digital art sites. There's a imaginary landscapes subreddit that I use pretty heavily. I, I keep checking that because people make cool fantasy and sci-fi art. And so I can show those to players and say, it looks like this. Or I can say, that's a cool idea. I want to change this and this. And now I have something in my head that I want to use. Any kind of fantastical landscape or anything is is going to work very well for inspiration, but don't neglect the real world ones. Right. There's that massive crystal cave in Mexico. Stonehenge is a thing. The pyramids are a thing. The Great yeah. Wall of China is a thing. That's the thing. Any good photography site that has cool landscapes, a great resource. Yeah. It could just be a feed of cool pictures. Those are great. Likewise, and this sort of segues into reading, things like National Geographic, Smithsonian Magazine space magazines of any sort, those are really cool for finding really fascinating places. Uh, we have a subscription to Smithsonian Magazine. I can't tell you how many articles I've looked at and said, I just want to turn this into a game. This is I would really imagine it's neat. a substantial number. Yeah. All of us you know, who have been to school and done research projects, pulled stuff out of old National Geographics, you know, we've all looked at those and said, man, that looks awesome. Well, that's what they're for, right? Those dramatic photographs are there to inspire and make you go, wow, that's really cool. Go ahead and turn those into set pieces or locations or encounters. Yeah, and you don't have to copy them. You can just use them for inspiration or you can. You know, I mean, if there's something like the Grand Canyon in your fantasy setting and you're the first ones to come across it, your jaws are probably going to be on the ground just like the first people who saw that feature were in the real life. I turned Ball's Pyramid into an encounter in our game. Yep. Ball's Pyramid is this giant triangular spike coming out of the Pacific Ocean, uh, sort of near Australia and New Zealand. It's just a big volcanic rock, yeah. Big spire of basalt, it looks like. It's just a impassable needle out in the middle of the ocean, like a half mile high or something nonsensical. Well, that's really cool. And, you know, when I send you a picture of, hey, this island off your coast looks like this, and it's just this dramatic spike of rock coming out of the ocean, you guys go, oh, I see that. That's cool. I get it. And I don't have to change that much. I can just say, no, nope. it's this. Yeah. And then, you know, as we explored, it's like, okay, it's got this detail and this detail because I'm adding something to fit it into the setting. But I don't have to, like, turn it into a upside-down flying fantasy island. I can just tell you, hey, it's a giant spike coming out of the water. That's kind of cool enough as it is. Yeah. Don't neglect articles in these magazines, either. The cool things that they describe 
are also material to turn into gaming and, and exploration material. Don't just look at the pictures. Likewise, histories are really valuable. A, you can read biographies of famous explorers, which is plenty of inspiration right there. But also, histories give you things that you can turn into exploration fodder that aren't just geography. Yeah, events or um, landmarks or... Things that were made at some point. Maybe it is part of the geography. Hey, here's an old castle. Okay, cool. Well, I'll take that, transplant it, brew in this part of it, add on to this. We've got our own unique thing, but it started with a history and something I read about. This is what happened to a particular tower. Well, put that into your game, because now the history of that tower is something you can discover as you explore. That's cool. Lastly, at least in terms of things to read, you know, monster manuals exist for a reason. They sure do. <laughs> Other campaign settings exist for a reason. I have built whole geographies out of a single encounter. It's, all right, I want to have this encounter. How do I make that realistically fit into the world? I can tell you right now, the encounter that you guys are going to have next session basically came out of that. All right. One of the islands you're going to encounter along the way, probably next session, is I found a level-appropriate encounter. How do I turn that into an island that the party will land on? Once you've got the answer to that, yeah. you've got something interesting. Exactly. And you know, other media is just as valid for inspiration. This game is partly inspired by Ursula K. Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea. I talked about that uh, last time, I think, right? Yep, Genre you fiction did. is full of inspiration. Just because other people have written it or turned it into comic or whatever. Yeah, you do not have to be the first person to think of everything that you use in your game. Exactly. It's not going to happen ever anyways. You might as well make peace with it. Yep. And, you know, video games, movies, uh, dramatic stills from movies, by the way. Great resource. Yeah. Because, again, you can say, it's like this, but show it to your players, and they immediately have a visual image of what you're looking at. I've been wanting to run a another exploration game, but sort of sailing through Sky Islands. It's heavily inspired by Bahamut Lagoon, a Super Famicom-era tactical RPG only released in Japan, and Studio Ghibli's Castle in the Sky, with a bit of C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader mixed in, just for taste and flavor. That's its own separate game game, and it's all about exploration, and those are three very specific inspirations that are not mine. This is not coming out of my head, it's coming out of other people's heads, and that's totally okay, because those things are really cool and would turn into a great game. If you are looking for fantastical stuff to throw into your setting, it's not a bad idea to look at what Kenneth Height would call elliptony, so... Um, those those weird, whatever the name of the state is, books, you know, weird Connecticut, weird Illinois, whatever, those are going to have lots of leg local legends about hauntings or weird, like, crypto animals or weird pseudo-history or that sort of thing that's happened. All of those are great ideas. The SCP website is a great idea. Yeah, Google haunted place name, you will yep. get interesting results. And then kind of these enduring myths like Atlantis or... Some of the wilder speculation about what Stonehenge was used for, all of that stuff also can be useful for gaming fodder. Yep. And then there's nature. Nature is crazy. We talked about like Ball's Pyramid, for example. Yep. Here's another really good example that I want to reference. Have you heard of the video game The Last of Us? I haven't played it. It's not on a platform I have access to, but are you familiar with it? I've Those heard of it. Those weird fungal zombies? I've heard of it. Yeah. Those are those are based on an actual fungus, the the cordyceps, which cordyceps. Will take over insects and make them do weird things. That is something that actually exists in nature. Yeah. Okay. So cordyceps, uh, freaky fungus that mind controls ants. Well, it 
yes, but uh, also other insects. Uh, there's actually about yeah. 300 species, and each one is adapted to a specific species of insect. Not just ants, although it's best known in ants. Best documented, perhaps. A spore gets into one of these insects, and it infects the creature's brain, changes its behavior, makes it go up high, usually, and then a fungal stalk grows out of the creature, usually out of the brain, which typically kills it, and then it sprouts from there, either so that it can spread spores out, or that so that the infected creature can be picked up by a predator and spread that way. It infects that animal, you know, its digestive system or its reproductive system, and spreads back the other way through the predator animal, continuing this cycle. Cordyceps is crazy. Uh, Chrissy, by the way, also asked me to include cordyceps in this game. Okay. So, expect horrible fungal zombies at some point. Duly noted. <laughs> yeah. And again, this is just nature. Once you add, I don't know, magic or space aliens or genetic engineering or superpowers to it, it just gets crazier. Yep. <laughs> sure does. Or you just invent something like giant slow-moving tree-munching beetles, which are just beetles, but hey, they're big and crazy. All right, cool. Yeah. We should probably talk about genres for exploration, too, a little bit. A little. Just, I, I don't want to go into this no, in much I, detail. Okay, I, I mostly want to mention the last thing on our list here, actually. So you've got the Age of Sail, like we're doing in our game, and you've got space exploration, which everybody... Those are the two that everybody thinks of, right? Uh, also, pulpy... Hollow Earth kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah you know, that's, explore that's, the jungle. Explore the, yeah. the weird, unknown parts of the world. You contrast, you know, that... 30s 40s modern era to the unknown savage wilderness that's yeah. also part of it post-apocalypse is the one that i wanted to talk about because the interesting thing about post-apocalypse is instead of technology being the enabler of exploration in that you can now get to places that you couldn't get to it takes places that are familiar and defamiliarizes them again so a really interesting example of this is the criminally short-running TV show Jericho, which is about a small town in Kansas that's relatively unaffected by a massive nuclear attack on the United States. They see the mushroom cloud over Denver kind of off on the horizon in the first episode, and mm -hmm. it's just kind of how they deal with this stuff. And the world that used to be familiar with the internet and the, you know, the the relationships between them and their surrounding communities and the, the kind of roles that people had, what the landscape was like, all of that changes in kind of the blink of an eye. An area that was once familiar might be totally alien now. So mm -hmm. don't forget that as a possibility if you want to do kind of an interesting exploration game. And a lot of zombie apocalypse media in particular is the journey of exploration. Yeah, definitely. The world has changed, but we have to get across the country or we have to go to the safe place, you know, whatever it is. Or find a safe place. Sure. And so they are traveling through... Areas that three years ago they would have said, you know, they, it would just small town. Okay, cool. Yeah, or, it's, a, it's a half hour drive. There's nothing there. Right. But now it's a, a difficult journey through changed territory full of dangers. And not all the dangers are zombies. They're also human. Because, of course, zombie stories are ultimately human drama stories with monsters around. Yep. Oh, resources are scarce. And then people are jerks. Yeah. <laughs> Every zombie story ever. <laughs> the end. Yep. Good talk. In fairness, there are a lot of other stories that don't involve zombies that are functionally the same. Yeah. And some of them are quite good. 
But sure, that's, you know, if you boil any interesting story down far enough, it starts sounding lame. (laughs) Yes, reductionism is its own crime. Yeah. But you're right. The idea of let's take a familiar landscape and then blow it up and turn it into something unfamiliar is pretty powerful. You mentioned Eberron earlier. That's sort of the Mornland, right? Hey, here's this place that used to be a nice, civilized D&D countryside in its own nation, and then something done blew it up. And it continues to kind of blow up. It's kind of in a constant state of having just blown up. It's its own hazardous environment, but there are all these ruins left over, and you can kind of be like, this is just a ghost town, and I mean literally a town full of ghosts. Yeah, and they're not all friendly. Totally fine. Totally cool. And don't be afraid to mix and match these. You guys have done a little bit of two-fisted pulp exploration in our Age of Sail game. We certainly have. Works out. I think that's mostly everything. If you guys have thoughts on this, and we've kind of been a little scattershot here, you know, talking about, you know, what and why and how. Yeah, this is kind of one of those multifaceted topics where it defies our usual outlining a little bit. Yeah, we've jumped around a bit as best we could, trying to kind of keep a steady flow here. I want to hear your own thoughts about this. And I've talked a lot about this in relation to my own game in the past, but I want to hear about, you know, exploration in your stories. I want to hear about cool media that you like that tells stories like this. Tell me what else I can include in my D&D game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Give Grant inspiration because he does wonderful things with it. And that's me being selfish, but also, you know, tell other people, hey, this is a cool story that does this particular thing. Well, tell us other pieces of media that do this really well, because we all kind of want to know. Yeah, and there's there's one big one that's coming up in March, Mass Effect Andromeda. I'm really interested to see how that plays out, because that's all about exploration. Also, you know, somebody recently sent me a copy of Darkest Dungeon. That's kind of an exploration game. Yeah, that's very much an exploration game. It's a dungeon crawl, not a environment exploration game, but hey, it's still cool. Open world games like Skyrim obviously do this really well for good reason. Yep. Okay, well, let's call it here, but like I said, keep us posted. Did we mention that exploration was a uh, Patreon backer selection topic? I don't think we did. Well, guess what? This particular episode was brought to you by all of our Patreon backers who voted on a poll that we put out every quarter. Uh, We're now doing that through the Patreon page itself. So if you are a uh, Patreon member, I think at $5 or more, you get to vote once a quarter and help us pick a topic. And this one was one of the ones that you picked. Uh, There was actually a tie, and so we broke the tie and went with exploration. But we'll have a few other options for you, including the other one that (laughs) was on the list. You know, if you're excited about that next time that rolls around, please do vote and help us pick a topic. And again, if you're not a a Patreon supporter, it's one of the perks you get. The other thing I want to mention is that if you don't want to support us on Patreon, easy thing you can do to help support the show, rate and review us on iTunes. That helps a ton gets the word out about the show and lets people know what you think of it, whether or not it's a five-star review. Like, I don't care if you rate us five stars. If you think we're a three-star show, a one-star show, that's fine. Just write an honest review of why to help people decide whether or not they are interested in listening to us. That helps a ton. It does, and it also gives us useful feedback that we can use to get better. Absolutely. All right. Well, from both Peter and myself, have a good one. Take it easy. We will catch you guys next time. See you later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. 
To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.